Good evening. My name is John White. I'm the Dean of Student Life here at the Princeton Theological Seminary. It is my great privilege to welcome you this evening to the Princeton Theological Seminary annual Martin Luther King Jr. Lecture. This evening, we are honored to have as our speaker the Reverend Dr. Frederick Haynes III. Dr. Haynes is the senior pastor of the Friendship West Church and Conference Center in Dallas, Texas. He is a graduate of Bishop College. He holds a MDiv degree from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and a Doctor of Ministry from the Graduate Theological Foundation. In addition to his role as senior pastor, Dr. Haynes is a dedicated community activist. His lifelong commitment to fighting against racial injustice and working towards economic justice and empowerment in underserviced communities is inspirational to many. Dr. Haynes is all about spiritual, social, and economic transformation. Dr. Haynes created the Thrive Leadership Program that employs young men and women at local businesses. These young people receive mentoring and coaching while providing valuable community service to their neighborhoods, towns, and cities. Dr. Haynes was recognized by former President Barack Obama for this impactful program that makes a difference in young persons' lives. Our guest speaker co-founded the annual Samuel DeWitt Proctor Conference. He is on the board of the National Action Network, the Conference of National Black Churches, and 100 Black Men of America. He is a member of the Board of Trustees of Paul Quinn College in Dallas, and 2013, he was honored to give remarks at the memorial service for South African President Nelson Mandela. And 2016, he was inducted into the International Civil Rights Hall of Fame. This evening, he is joined by his daughter, Abani. Friends, Please join me in welcoming Dr. Haynes to Princeton Theological Seminary. Let me express my appreciation to the Dean for his uh, kind and gracious introduction. I'm also uh, honored to be here and recognize the wisdom of the late great Dr. Samuel DeWitt Proctor uh, in his autobiography. He talked about the importance, especially for those of us in the black community, of never settling for serving as a token, uh, but instead to serve as a wedge. When you open up a door, uh, the door is held ajar by a wedge. And so I know I'm not here because I'm some sterling scholar, uh, but because I have the hookup, uh, or as the hip hop generation says today, uh, I know the plug, Dr. Carrie Day. 
And so I want to thank Dr. Kerry Day. She uh, is greatly missed in Dallas-Fort Worth. And I need to say this unapologetically. You are greatly gifted here uh, in this community uh, with an extraordinary scholar, a brilliant uh, preacher of the gospel, and a wonderful woman of faith. Uh, in Dr. Kerry Day. She blessed us with membership at Friendship West in Dallas. And so when she uh, told me that she was leaving, I went into deep grief and mourning. And so I hope that you will uh, pray for me. And maybe some of you may know a good grief counselor because uh, we miss Dr. Kerry Day. Uh, but our loss is your gain. And so we, we thank God for her. I'm really excited also to see a part of your all-star team of scholars here at Princeton. You have, of course, Dr. Cleo LaRue, uh, who has become a legend in homiletics. And so we appreciate so much uh, his gospel gifts and what he means to the body of Christ and especially to uh, the pulpit and how he has given uh, the black preaching tradition, uh, the kind of stage it deserves. And so I salute you, uh, Dr. LaRue, for your work. Uh, I've been greatly blessed today. Dr. Howard Thurman said, whenever you are privileged to uh, go to a college campus, you should listen twice as much as you talk. And uh, I don't know if I've hit that ratio yet, uh, but I have been blessed greatly by my interaction with uh, the students here, as well as uh, the faculty and staff I've been, been privileged to meet. So thank you so much for uh, my continuing education here at Princeton. I may just sneak this on my resume and say, uh, I learned a lot at Princeton Theological Seminary. <laughs> so thank you very much. Uh, as, as, as has been mentioned, uh, my daughter, Abney Jewel Haynes, is here. She's a uh, student in acting uh, on Broadway in New York, and so I'm really proud of her. She's a graduate of Howard uh, University in D.C., and she is doing her thing, and so I'm most proud of her and wanted to acknowledge with affection and appreciation her presence. Uh, I am indeed honored and humbled to present during what PTS calls the Martin Luther King Jr. Lecture. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, by way of transparency, full disclosure, uh, is one of the great influences. I consider him a vicarious mentor. And so I want to, in these few moments, share with you uh, some thoughts I've been wrestling with uh, on following Dr. King out of chaos to community. Following Dr. King out of chaos to community. The prophetic rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel warned America that how we respond to the influence of Martin Luther King Jr. would determine our future. Of course, I can't help but go to the streets and hear the poets from the streets articulate to Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, how have we responded to Martin Luther King Jr. Ludicrous, Luda throws down like this by suggesting that I dreamed of telling Dr. King, I, I dreamed of telling Martin Luther that we had made it, 
but over half of my black brothers are still incarcerated. And then Jay-Z, Beyonce's husband, says that we should all understand our response to Dr. King with these poetic words. Jay-Z, help us right quick. Jay throws down by saying, everybody want to be king until shots ring. They're laying on a balcony with holes in their drain. Both Ludacris and Jay-Z articulate artistically the response of America to the drum major for justice, Martin Luther King Jr. Ludacris talks about what? The new Jim Crow having replaced the old Jim Crow that had been banished by the civil rights struggle, drum majored by Martin Luther King Jr., the new Jim Crow. We must give credit to Michelle Alexander, who understands that the prison industrial complex or mass incarceration fed too often by police misconduct, not to mention a criminal justice system that is criminal and downright unjust, has produced what Michelle calls a new caste, C-A-S, STE system, a caste system that in a real sense has created this new Jim Crow, this new Jim Crow that has, that, that this new Jim Crow that as a consequence of its discriminatory policies, as a consequence of its racism, continues American repression, the repression of the empire on people of Ebony Hue. How have we responded to Martin Luther King Jr. ludicrous? says we've responded by through mass incarceration, but then Jay-Z says there are holes in the dream of Dr. King. Everybody want to be king till shots ring. You laying on a balcony with holes in your dream. Holes in the dream of Martin Luther King Jr. What are those holes? Well, Martin Luther King Jr. died fighting for those who are imprisoned by impoverishment. Martin Luther King Jr. died while standing with sanitation workers who were striking there in Memphis, Tennessee. What have we done in response to Martin Luther King Jr., Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel? We have invisibilized the poor, or in many instances, we have demonized the poor. What is our response to Martin Luther King Jr.? Martin Luther King Jr. spent his short yet significant 13-year ministry, that's all from 1955 to 1968, 13 years, that's how long his ministry lasted. Martin King Jr. never made it to the age of 40, but in that short yet significant prophetic ministry, here Dr. King doing everything in his power to dismantle structured racism in these disunited states of America. What have we done? Well, it's reflected in the month of February, Black History Month. Have you noted what happened this month? Just this month, we've discovered that blackface has made a comeback, and in the process, we have un unveiled the reality that racism is bipartisan in these disunited states of America. That occurred in Black History Month, but then we also can shout because in Chicago, a black woman is going to be 
be the next mayor of the city of Chicago. That says much about what has happened in this country, but as soon as we celebrated what happened in Chicago, there was a testimony yesterday in Washington, D.C., and the former attorney for the current occupant of the White House revealed to Americans what black Americans have known from jump because the same person who rode his political wave by declaring that the first black president of the United States was not legitimately a citizen of this country. This same individual who declared that a Mexican judge, a Mexican judge because of his ethnicity, because of his race, was not qualified to do what he had been educated to do when it came to judging, calling balls and strikes as it were. The same occupant of the White House who looked at the uprising there in Charlottesville or the racial conflict in Charlottesville and had the unmitigated gall to equivocate and suggest that there were good people on both sides. This same individual who brought into his cabinet those who are a part of the alt-right movement, this same occupant of the White House, we've already known as the racist in chief now has someone who served as his attorney who was said before a committee in Congress that he is not just a con man, but he is a racist. All of that has happened during the month of February, the shortest month, and yet it has been quite a month reflecting, here it is, the response of this country to the drum major for justice, Martin Luther King Jr., Abraham Joshua Heschel warned this country the future of this country will be determined how we respond to Martin Luther King Jr. How have we responded? Yes, February is a reflection, but in the half century since Martin King was assassinated there on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee, we have watched the ebb and flow of the response of this country to Martin Luther King Jr. producing holes in his dream. You see the ebb and flow in that in the aftermath of his assassination, a housing bill was passed in tribute to Dr. King, eliminating discrimination in housing. But then Richard Nixon was elected on the wave of a Southern strategy, which blatantly, in a real sense, stood, uh, that, that, that blatantly, in a real sense, was racist in tone. And then my sisters and brothers, after he got caught up in his own scandal, then Jimmy Carter from the South was elected as president. But then Ronald Reagan decides the best thing to do is to go down to Mississippi and there in Mississippi stand for states' rights. Of course, that is a, a dog whistle to white racists to say you're on our side. And even white even Evangelicals abandoned Jimmy Carter and voted for Ronald Reagan. About this time, we all note mass incarceration begins to gather steam, having been started by Richard Nixon. But now the drugs are flooding African American communities. What happens? I guess I'll go with Tupac now because Tupac threw down by saying instead of a war on poverty, they have a war on drugs so the police can buy 
bother me again. You see the ebb and the flow. How have we responded to the drum major for justice? We've responded sometimes with, with progress and then other times to use the language of Van Jones with a white lash. We rush on to 2007 and 2008 when Barack Obama shocked the world and was elected president of the United States of America for eight years. There was sophistication, cultivation, integrity in the White House. For eight years, we had that kind of cool cultivation strolling through the White House with an unmitigated swag from the south side of Chicago. We had that for eight years. For eight years, no drama Obama. And then 2016 hit, and we awaken on 11-9-16 to discover that Donald Trump had been elected as the President of the United States. I am not exaggerating when I suggest that future historians may well say of the United States of America that 11-9 was our moral 9-11. Why our moral 9-11? Because Dr. Cornell West says we are experiencing now the spiritual eclipse of decency, honesty, and integrity. I piggyback on what Dr. West said and say that we are now caught up in the chaotic shadows, here it is, of emboldened racism, a resurgent white supremacy, ugly xenophobia, predatory patriarchy, not to mention unvarnished greed and military madness. These are chaotic times that we find ourselves in. And so what has been the response of this nation to the drum major for justice, love, and peace? The response has been one of an ebb and flow. The response has been one of progress that was then intercepted by a white lash. What has been the response? Everybody want to be king till shots ring. They're laying on a balcony with holes in their dream, and the holes in the dream have produced a chaotic context that we find ourselves in. And I am here to suggest that perhaps we need to go back and reclaim Martin Luther King Jr., the drum major for justice, love, and peace, as opposed to the sanitized and deodorized version of Dr. King that has been de-radicalized. Well, I need help here, so and so I borrow from the brilliant late great Dr. Vincent Harding. Dr. Vincent Harding said in his wonderful work, Inconvenient Hero, that we have reduced Martin Luther King Jr. to a convenient hero. He's convenient because he's dead now and we can reinterpret or remix him for our own convenience. What have we done? We have frozen Dr. King on August 28, 1963. What a magnificent day that was, August 28, 1963. 250,000 gathered in the shadows of the Lincoln Memorial 100 years after the Emancipation Proclamation and hear Dr. King articulate his dream, but we often forget that before he articulated his dream, he was narrating the American nightmare. And the only reason he articulated his dream was because Mahalia Jackson, who was seated off to the side because unfortunately
unfortunately, toxic masculinity and patriarchy was dominating the, uh, was dominating the justice movement. I use my language on purpose. Toxic masculinity and patriarchy was dominating the movement for justice. And with that being the case, my sisters and brothers, Mahalia Jackson was off to the side and she was really the only one who had a chance to shine on the program even though Dorothy Height was also had forced her way up to sitting on that stage and then Martin King's message is doing pretty well after all and a, a, a C for Dr. King would be an A plus for the rest of us but it really wasn't hitting on all cylinders until Mahalia Jackson leaned over and saw the message wasn't quite flying and said tell him about the dream Martin and that's when he shifted into in spite of the difficulties of this day I still have a dream and Dr. Michael Eric Dyson is on point when he says about black women even when black women aren't in aren't in charge they're still in control I like that right there because Dr. King shifts into his dream and when he articulated that brilliant vision of what America could and should be it was a glorious moment but my sisters and brothers we have frozen Dr. King into August 28, 1963 as if you get assassinated for dreaming as if you are declared the most dangerous man in America for dreaming as if you are living every day under the threat of death because you are dreaming Dr. King did not get assassinated because he had a dream but Dr. King was assassinated and declared the most dangerous man in America because he was fighting the American nightmare because Dr. King in his last years what the HBO special called what King in the wilderness in the wilderness King was attacking the systems and structures of American racism because according to Dr. King America was not willing to pay the price for real liberty and justice for all. It did not cost America a dime to integrate lunch counters. It did not cost America a dime to integrate schools. It did not cost America a dime to engage in desegregation. If we keep it a buck, we discover America got rich when black money went into white communities. And so it didn't cost America anything, but now Dr. King in his last years is saying, America, it's time to pay up. It's going to cost for this country to engage in repairing what you have done in 350 years to black people in this country. 1619, 400 years ago, 350 years when Dr. King, from the time Dr. King was assassinated, but for 400 years, according to my good friend, Dr. Kevin Cosby, black people have not lived one day without dealing with injustice and racism. 400 years we've had to live under that kind of hypocritical tyranny in the land of the free and the home of the brave. 400 years, that's what black people have had to deal with. And Dr. King, in those last years, was challenging America to be ready to foot the bill and pay the 
Christ for liberty and justice for all. And that, my sisters and brothers, is the king we have to reclaim. That's the king we have to make sure that we are, are, are acquainted with because it is that king that Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel said we are to respond to. It's not the dreaming king. It's the visionary prophetic king who is speaking truth to power and daring to stand against the American nightmare. And so my sisters and brothers, I simply say in this King lecture, that is our challenge to follow Dr. King out of this current chaos to community, the beloved community that he died envisioning, the beloved community he wanted all of us to experience. That is what we are called to fight for. That is what we are called to do. Let's follow Dr. King out of this chaos in to true community. What does that look like? Well, it looks to begin with that we must, if we are honest and integritous, we must reclaim the real Dr. King. We must reclaim the real Dr. King. I, be I believe I've already started down this path because again, we have frozen Dr. King and locked him in to being a dreamer and a dreamer only. Dr. King was much more than a dreamer. We must remember that Dr. King never identified himself as a dreamer, but he did refer to him himself as a drum major for justice. He did refer to himself as a drum major for love. He did refer to himself as a drum major for peace. So if that's how he self-identified, why are we having the nerve to rename him and re-identify him when he self-identified in that sermon preached in February of 1968 there at Ebenezer Church in Atlanta called the drum major justice, uh, the drum major instinct. You recall he took that text from Mark chapter 10 when, when the son, when, 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 when the mother of, of, of James and John, the sons of Zebedee said, yo, when you come into the kingdom, gee, why don't you hook my sons up? Why don't you serve as their plug? Because they, as your cousins, ought to have a seat, one on your right and one on your left. And Jesus, and, and according to to Martin King. Jesus did not condemn them for this request, but instead Jesus said, you want to be great? It's cool. Come on, be great if you want to, but if you want to be great, recognize if you want to sit where I sit, you're going to have to suffer like I suffered. If you want to sit where I sit, you've got to serve like I serve. If you want to be great, you must serve. And he goes on to say, if you want to be great, and that's what he said in that same message, I love it right there. He says, I choose to suffer with the poor. I choose to identify with the least of these because somewhere I read, do something for others. That's the Dr. King that we must reclaim. Not the dreaming king, but the king who went from hallelujah in the sanctuary to do hallelujah in the streets. I'm talking about Martin Luther King Jr. 
we've got to reclaim the true Martin Luther King Jr. as a prophetic witness who courageously was willing to pay the price to speak truth to power. Please don't forget the best friend that black people have ever had in the White House policy-wise was Lyndon Baines Johnson. No other president in the history of this country has done more for black people with specific policies than Lyndon Baines Johnson. Yes, I said it, and I'm telling it like a T.I. is. Lyndon Baines Johnson has done more for any for black people than any president in the history of this country up until the very present president. No one has done more than Lyndon Baines Johnson. Why? Because through Lyndon Baines Johnson, the Civil Rights Bill was passed through. His political savvy, the Voting Rights Bill, was passed as he was pushed by King from the streets from Selma to Montgomery to, to pass voting rights legislation. And then the Housing Rights Bill, all of that came under Lyndon Baines Johnson. And so with him being our best friend, surely you're not going to come against Johnson. But what did Martin do? Martin spoke truth to power and said there's something wrong with us bombing those poor children in Vietnam. And he took a stand against the war, the unjust war in Vietnam, because King had a global consciousness. He connected the dots and understood that racism, militarism, and materialism are an unholy trinity. They are evil triplets, and those evil triplets were the weapons of empire that were destroying the country internally and also a menace to the world externally. Bombs dropped in Vietnam were exploding in the cities of the United States of America because Martin Luther King Jr. dared to speak truth to power and was willing to pay the price. I like that, willing to pay the price because the moment you authentically and courageously speak truth to power, at that moment you're going to understand that you may not get some of your programs funded. You may not get money from big, uh, from big corporations. You may lose government contracts. But Martin Luther King Jr. said, I'd rather lose a government contract and still make sure I'm connected with the kingdom of God. And that, my sisters and brothers, is the king that we have to reclaim, the king that we have to understand, because it's that Martin Luther King Jr. who tells us we must speak truth to power. And when you speak truth to power, you have to have the courage to be willing to pay the price. I guess I'll give it to you like this. I'm here at Princeton, so I thought I would do some extra homework. And there's an amazing passage of scripture found in what? First Kings chapter 18. And you recall Elijah had dared to speak truth to power to Ahab and Jezebel. And you know what went down when he did that? He said, listen, because of your policies, I'm going to say there will be no more rain nor dew in the land until I give the green light. And then he vanishes from the stage. And when he vanishes from the stage, a, a, a drought took place. And of course, Bible readers understand the economy of that particular uh, time was not one that was agricultural. And so you have an agricultural economy that has no rain nor dew. And all they can do is trace it back to a prophetic pronouncement
announcement from this preacher out of nowhere, Elijah. Well, chapter 18, we see that uh, 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 Elijah is found by Obadiah, who's one of the prophets on the payroll of the king, because every king of an empire has prophets on payroll to make sure those prophets are doing their bidding. And so here's what happens. He uh, says to Obadiah, yo, oh, uh, 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 Obadiah runs into Elijah and says, E, I've been looking for you, and the king ain't happy. And he says, oh, tell him I'm right here. And tell him that if, if he wants me, I ain't going nowhere. And here comes the king, Ahab. And listen to what Ahab says in verse 17 of chapter 18. He says, are you the one who's been troubling Israel? I like that. Are you the one who's been troubling the nation? Well, again, here I am at Princeton. I had to do my homework. I got to make my girl, Dr. Carrie Day, proud. And so etymologically, I, un etymologically, I unpacked that word uh, trouble in the original Hebrew. It's going to shout you. The word trouble was also used, here it is, to royal, R-O-I-L, water. That was the word. It's used to trouble water, to, to make water disturb, to disturb water. Are you the one that's been disturbing water? My wonderful daughter is here, and maybe she'll let me use this illustration. She's a kid, and she loved to play with rubber ducks in the bathtub. And so one time she said, Daddy, there's a rubber duck in this tub, but it's at the end of the tub. I'm going to make that rubber duck come to me. I own the duck. The duck belongs to me, but it's gotten away from me. I'm going to make the duck come to me without touching it. I said, how are you going to do that? And Abney then troubled the water. She raised her hands, and her hand came down on the water. And can you see on the screen of your anointed imagination as the waves of the water go in the direction of the duck at the end of the tub, and the duck catches the wave and then rides back to its owner. What am I trying to say? Martin King Jr. in his time said, America you've gotten away from the God you claim to trust. And since you've gotten away from God, I've got to royal the water. I've got to trouble the water. And when Martin troubled the water, it created waves. Here is our challenge at Princeton Theological Seminary. In this time of chaos, God is looking for some wave makers. God is looking for those who will trouble the waters. Why? Because America has gotten away from the God America claims to trust. I move forward and say not only must we reclaim king, but we have a responsibility after reclaiming king. I love this, and that is to revolt against injustice wherever it finds itself. I like that right there, revolting against injustice wherever it finds itself. I'm sure Dr. King today would say, church, let me start with you, because in too many instances the church has been the greatest committer of sin in the nation. Why? Because to go to church is to find a church that in many instances is so caught up in its ideology that it elicits a hatred for people that are different. Let's start in the church because the Bible says judgment starts at the house of God. So surely Martin King would be concerned about a church not being the beloved community. Black church, may I talk to you right quick? Because black church, you have done such a horrible job of res 
conceiving of receiving a theology that was that the, the theology whose DNA goes all the way back to ancestors that used that same theology to oppress and hold you down. That same theology that produces a white Jesus, a white Jesus who is guilty in too many instances of siding with slavery, sanctioning segregation, and second-class citizenship, and looks nothing like the Jesus of Scripture, who was a, I love it, sable-skinned Savior from the streets. And so with that being the case, we've got to reclaim the Savior. And in reclaiming the Savior, something happens. That means we understand the need to be a community of love, a community that embraces and does not reject based on how God created someone. And so there should not be, here it is, any second-class citizens if you call yourself God's first-class church. I'm simply trying to say once you embrace fully who God made you, regardless of how you self-identify, it's a sin against the Creator when the church is judgmental and the church discriminates against people because of how they were made. And so my sisters and brothers, King would start with the black church because the black church, according to King in his last speech, preachers often were so caught up in themselves that they didn't care about anyone else. In his last speech and in others, he talked about preachers, black preachers, who were more concerned about the size of their wheel, wheel, wheel base on their automobile than they were about service to humanity. He'd start with the black church, but all oh, he wouldn't stay in the black church. He'd say, white church, I've got to come for you because white church in too many instances, you've been silent on the sidelines while injustice has taken place. In too many instances, you have not taken a stand for justice and righteousness. It's time for the white church to also stand up for justice and stand up for righteousness. But he wouldn't stop there. He would keep it going until he dealt with the truism of racism. Because in too many instances in this country, you'll agree with me, we are clueless about what racism is. Does it not blow your mind that oftentimes those who are perpetrators or beneficiaries of racism are the ones who decide to define what racism is. How are you going to define what racism is when you've either benefited from it or you are perpetuating it? It must be, we must listen to those who've been victimized by racism just as we should listen to those who are victimized by what? Patriarchy and victimized by predatory males. We must listen and hear their voices. I'm simply saying, let's listen and hear the voices of blacks who know what racism is in these disunited states of America. Yes, we know about interpersonal racism, and that's what causes us to come unglued. That's the racism that makes news, but we never deal with racism in public policy. We never deal with racism in structures and institutions and systems that in a real sense are the reason that racism still exists. I'm not coming through. Eddie Glaude Jr. will help me out right here. Professor Glaude challenged me greatly in his wonderful work. I know you've all read it. You're at Princeton. The work is entitled Democracy in Black. And in this, he talks about in America, we have to learn new ways of articulating that which is often political, 
related to race. And one of the things he suggests is in America, we all know about what the achievement gap, the, va uh, uh, the wealth gap, but we say nothing about the value gap. It's the value gap that informs and is the, re is the reason for the wealth gap and the achievement gap. And so he goes on to illustrate with the fact that who was it, John Adams, in conversation at the beginning of the founding of this nation with the King of England, says to the King of England, we're not going to let you treat us like Negroes. Why? Because in the structure, in the founding of this country, structured a structured value gap was placed so much so that when you define black bodies we're defined not as a whole person but as a fraction three-fifths of an individual and so professor Glaude says we've got to address the value gap that's one way of dealing with this thing called race because in this nation I believe the professor is challenging each and every one of us to truly value one another because when I see your humanity as a creation of almighty God, that means your value is already inherently established. And as a consequence, I must ensure that even policies and the culture of this country reflect you valued as a woman, valued as a person in the LGBTQ community, valued as a person of color, valued because God has created you in God's image and in God's likeness. And so I piggyback on Dr. Glauda by saying another way of looking at this is also America must deal with her structured and spiritual blind spots. I like that because when you drive, if you're not careful, you may not see someone and run them off the road because you don't see them. I didn't come through. Uh, uh, when you drive, you may make a move, may make a decision, and because the person on the side of you is in your blind spot, you don't see them. You treat them like you don't see them, and they end up running off the road. America, I suggest, has systemic, structured, and spiritual blind spots. And the blind spots have resulted in pileups. The blind spots have resulted in collisions. The blind spots have resulted in something we witnessed just yesterday. A black woman used as a prop in order to justify or to make innocent one who has a track record of racism, that black woman was not seen as a child of God. She was used as an object and not a subject in the sentence of her own life. I'm simply trying to say that we must reclaim king, and when we reclaim king, we must make sure that we also revolt against injustice in any form, revolt against anything that, watch this, devalues individuals revolt against the blind spot. I hope you've seen the movie Blind Spotting because in the movie Blind Spotting it deals with this concept of structured blind spots in this nation. We must deal with blind spots if we are going to be a true country, a true nation, a true church. We must deal with our blind spots. In the final analysis, not only must we reclaim who King is, not only must we revolt 
against injustice. But I want to suggest we have to restructure and redeem the soul of this nation. Restructure and redeem the soul of this nation. Now, this king doesn't get quoted often, but in his last speech as president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, he closed out the sermon, and I loved how he did it. It's his annual address, but he says, prefacing his close, I hope you won't mind if I preach for just a little bit. And he went on to talk about a conversation that took place one night between Nicodemus and Jesus Christ. Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and according to Martin King, Jesus says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you must be born again, meaning your very structure has to be redone. Your structure is not right, and as long as your structure is not right, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he went into his black preacher application and said, America, you must be born again. Your structure must be redone. Your structure is not right. My mentor, Dr. Jeremiah Wright Jr., throws down like this. He says, if you were to bake a cake, don't miss this, you bake a cake, pull the cake out of the oven, and remember, oh my God, I forgot to add sugar to this cake. What are you going to do? Are you going to pour sugar on top of the cake? No, because you recognize the cake, here it is, has been constituted wrong. And because it's been constituted wrong, you have to rebake the cake. And I'm simply trying to say, America, it's time to rebake the cake. The cake was constituted wrong from jump, and it's time for us to rebake the cake. That's why I close with the wonderful wisdom of Fannie Lou Hamer. Ah, uh, acquaint yourself with Fannie Lou Hamer, that major prophet from Mississippi. Fannie Lou Hamer, with ungrammatical profundity, went to the 1964 Democratic Convention there in Atlantic City, New Jersey. And she gave that speech that shook the nation as she exposed the hypocrisy of American democracy, treating her like a second-class citizen. And a white reporter asked Fannie Lou Hamer after that great speech, are you saying that you want to be equal with the white man? Fannie Lou had a clap back that was classic. Fannie Lou said, equal with the white man? No, child, I don't want to go that low. I want to raise this country and raise myself and raise that white man up to what real democracy is all about. I'm not trying to be equal to the white man. I'm trying to raise up myself, the white man, and American democracy. And so all I'm trying to say, y'all, it's time to raise up. It's time to raise up and remember Martin Luther King Jr. for who he was. It's time to raise up and make some waves and royal the water. It's time to raise up and revolt against injustice. It's time to raise up and restructure America because the cake was constituted wrong. And so will God use you to rebake the cake? Because when the cake is rebaked, then all of us will do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. When the cake is rebaked, then justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Let's raise up and rebake the cake. Peace. Yeah.